You're listening to Accounting Matters, an accounting podcast powered by Embark about accounting matters because accounting matters. On today's episode, Adam and I invited fan favorite Jason Larkin back onto the podcast to talk about some more accounting matters. Today, we tackled some of the common accounting and reporting considerations for an IPO. So we touched on things like segment reporting, earnings per share, non-GAAP measures, MD&A disclosures, business combinations, stock-based compensation and cheap stock, and the SEC comment reporting process. Now, I know that sounds like a lot, but I bet these next 30 or so minutes will fly by and you'll come out on the other side geared up with more IPO knowledge. We hit on most of these things from a high level, so I think you're going to get a lot out of this. We hope you enjoy the conversation and learn something new. This is Sarah Cage, and I'm joined by my co-host, Adam Olson. How are you doing, Adam? Not too bad. <laughs> <laughs> and we have Jason Larkin back in the building, no longer managing director, but Mr. President, <laughs> the market president of Dallas. Jason, why would we invite you to come here and talk to us today about <laughs> IPOs? What? Ouch. What? Why did we pick you? <laughs> Yeah, so I, I think we got good feedback on the first couple of podcasts, so maybe that's why. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. Fan favorite. All yeah. of those were the most liked, yeah. Yeah, so I think one of the um, areas that I've been really fortunate to get um, some experience in throughout my career is as companies are thinking about going public, IPO readiness assessments, and actually right now, from an Embark perspective, helping lead a couple of companies through the IPO process, um, traditional IPOs, and um, also in discussions with some companies in SPAC. So hopefully can share some of those real life experiences that we've been working through with those companies as they go through the IPO journey themselves. That's awesome. And we've alluded to it, but today our topic is IPOs. And this is a topic that's really top of mind, um, whether it be through traditional IPO or other alternative vehicles like SPACs, which we actually have an episode on, we've seen an increase in all of this. And so we won't have time to hit on every potential issue that can be raised for companies exploring these opportunities, but we will highlight some of the top common accounting reporting concerns that companies may face. So keeping that in mind, these are areas where there might be increased judgment, uh, complex accounting is often included here as well, and areas where the SEC staff are known to raise comments during their review process. So I think this is going to be a really helpful conversation for our listeners. And without wasting any more time, let's jump in by, um, I guess we'll start with Jason. Let's kick it off with the first item on our list, which is segment reporting. What We always give you segment reporting. <laughs> I think Jason has talked about segment reporting on every single episode we've had him on. He requested. Yeah. <laughs> I'm trying to keep consistency for the listeners. Is that the, the only topic. codification that you yeah, know? Okay. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. That's right. So segment reporting, what impact does going public have on an entity's need for segment reporting? Yeah. So I think it makes sense to start here because this is one of the, the first areas as a company is considering going public that they really have to think about because... Um, the, the segment reporting disclosures are not required for private companies. So under ASC 280, which is the, the segment reporting or the segment accounting guidance, there's not the same level of requirements, especially from a disclosure perspective for private companies. Um, private companies still may be familiar with some of the concepts around this because a lot of companies utilize it when they're looking at goodwill impairment analysis. They have to determine their reporting units for goodwill impairment analysis, but ultimately those 
operating segments or portable segments may not have given as much thought to that as a private company versus needing to really think about it and make those accounting determinations as a public company. And maybe for those who haven't listened to our segment reporting episode or haven't seen you on another episode, we can just give a brief overview of what segment reporting actually is um, and what it's intended to achieve. Yep. Yeah, so ultimately segment reporting is really to provide the users of the financials with more information about the different types of activities and business environments that those companies operate in um, and really give a lens for investors into understanding what the company's performance is, expected cash flows and operating results for the organization, and then just judgments that the company makes about the organization. Um, I always think about this in the context of how does the CODM or the chief operating decision maker really view the business and communicating that to the users of the financial statements in the context of how do they assess performance of the, of the organization and then allocate resources. And then just practically, how is segment reporting guidance applied? Yep, so I think the first step is really to identify those operating segments as I alluded to earlier. So figure out what are your operating segments and there's some specific criteria that we outline um, in, and go into a little bit more detail in the other segment podcast, but identify those operating segments, then assess if you need to aggregate those for reportable segment purposes, which is what ultimately goes into your disclosures as a public company. Then determine if those reportable segments cover enough of the operations of the business. There's some specific criteria in terms of the total percentage of the business that's disclosed, so you have to double check that. And then there's some other potential disclosures that may be required that you have to go back and, and check to make sure that you've complied with all the disclosures. So we've talked about segment reporting quite a few times, so it's obviously important and challenging. And so why is it so challenging and why is it at risk for SEC comments? Yeah, I think it's one of those, you look at any of the reports out there on SEC comment letters, it's always there. And I think it's really being driven by the amount of judgment that's inherent in determining your segments. Um, and one of the, the key red flags that often comes up, if you ultimately determine you have one reportable segment, that's a real red flag mm -hmm. um, to the SEC to really understand were there multiple operating segments that were identified that ultimately got aggregated? How did the company go through and determine that those had similar economic characteristics? to aggregate. And so those are some of the things that they um, really focus on. The other key thing to think about is this is not just a disclosure for your financial statements, mm -hmm. but ultimately it flows through into how you disclose things within MDNA and other components of um, you know, the, the public filings that you're going to have. And so it has a pervasive impact. And one of the reasons why the SEC is so focused on making sure that companies have really properly applied the, the accounting literature. All right. Well, we're done with segment reporting. So, Jason, thank you for your time. Right. And <laughs> See you guys. See you guys next time we talk about segments. Yeah. Can we bring it up again? I'm sure we can. We will. You guys will know so much about segment reporting by the time we're done with Jason. Yeah. He's your uh, guy to call for sure. Yeah. <laughs> well, um, another concept for private companies that might find themselves going public to consider is earnings per share guidance. Um, this may or may not be a big deal depending on their underlying capital structure. But as we've seen, when capital structures are complex, maybe you have multiple classes of equity, it can be challenging to undertake this exercise. So Adam, can you recap the basic requirements for earnings per share? I'll try. <laughs> <laughs> 
I feel like this one can get a little hairy, but you know, like you said, depending on your your underlying equity structure, you know, it may not be that big a deal. But oftentimes, you know, there's a lot of complex equity instruments involved, so it it tends to cause a little more panic than most would like. So, mm -hmm. uh, ASC 260 is the guidance that provides kind of the framework for earnings per share. Um, and basically high level for each of your periods that you present in your financial statements, you have to present both a basic earnings per share metric as well as a diluted earnings per share metric. And there's also some related disclosures, you know, related to both of those as well. So can you take a little bit of a deeper dive into the difference between basic versus diluted EPS? Yeah, sure. So basic, you know, it's it's formulaic. Like I said, it is a calculation. So you're basically looking at all the income that's available to common shareholders, and it's going to be divided by the weighted average number of common shares that you have outstanding. So on the other hand, diluted earnings per share is really determined by making adjustments to both your numerator and your denominator. And those adjustments are really to reflect income and the weighted average number of shares that would have existed had the potential um, common shares you know, been outstanding as common shares during the entire period, or if they were issued during the period, you know, from the date they were outstanding or potentially outstanding. Um, one thing to keep in mind is that, you know, it, from a diluted earnings per share perspective, you know, potential common shares are not included if they would make the measurement, you know, what is considered anti-diluted. And that is basically when you include that, you know, that um, potential share into the calculation, it would increase your earnings per share. So has an anti-dilutive effect, so no need to include that if that's the outcome there. You know, like I said, there are a lot of complexities, you know, related earnings per share. If you've got multi-layered, you know, equity structures, multiple classes of common shares, or you got participating securities, um, you know, options, warrants, convertible instruments, preferred stock, all of those things can add a lot of complexity to the calculation. And, you know, many times private companies do have a lot of those different type of equity instruments. So when they first take this exercise on, it, it really isn't as straightforward as they would like. And what types of comments might the SEC raise here? Yeah, so most of them really do just stem around the calculation of earnings per share and trying to understand um, maybe some of the determinations that were made, um, particularly if you do have a more complex equity structure. So if you're you know, other parts of the financial statements or your registration statement, you know, indicate multiple classes of, you know, common shares and you don't use this, you know, two class approach that exists under the EPS guidance. You know, there may be questions around how did you make that determination? Um, you know, there could be questions around just some of the disclosures that are involved there. Um, adjustments that you made, you know, things of that nature. So it really comes down to the complexity is where we see most of the comments um, raised by the SEC, just trying to understand, is the approach you took correct? Um, and can you help us justify why that was the right answer? All right, and we'll switch gears and we'll try giving Jason a non-segment reporting question, but we'll see how this goes. This is my trial yeah. for the next five We'll see if you have credibility. <laughs> Um, moving on, we're going to talk about non-GAAP measures. So I know this is something that companies may have to contemplate when they're looking to IPO. Um, so what exactly are non-GAAP measures used for by companies? Yep. Yeah, so I think I'll start by saying companies' financial statements have to be prepared in accordance with GAAP. Mm -hmm. um, so there are non-GAAP measures which companies can utilize to provide information that they think is valuable to investors, Financial statements have to be under U.S. GAAP. Typically, these are numerical disclosures that provide additional information around financial re 
performance, financial stability, liquidity, those types of things. Um, some of the common non-GAAP measures that we see are EBITDA, adjusted EBITDA, adjusted net income, um, those types of metrics which management believes is beneficial to the users of the financial statements. Um, the real intent of these is to highlight some of the key information um, that's occurred throughout the reporting period um, as, a, as a company is going through their, their public filings. So are there any guidelines companies have to be aware of around these non-GAAP measures? Yep. Yeah. So there's, there's a whole host of guidance within Regulation G and Regulation SK, Item 10E, that really require a framework of what's going to be disclosed in accordance with non-GAAP measures. Um, this is an area where we've seen a pretty high level of scrutiny from the SEC recently. Mm -hmm. um, you know, in, in the context of really a couple areas. One, is the information misleading to investors? Is it more prominent than the gap metrics? And then also just lack of labeling things as non-gap measures. Um, part of the guidance um, in those in the reg regulations require you to label these as non-gap measures. So that way the users of financials can understand these are truly non-gap measures that management believes is important and beneficial to the users. And this one's just for free, but are non-GAAP measures typically driven by industry? Like, are there certain industries that maybe use certain metrics or? Yeah, so I think there are some metrics that are used specific to certain industries. Um, you know, there one example that comes to mind, same store sales from a retail perspective, mm -hmm. um, just as, as one, I think. EBITDA is one that's used a lot across a lot of industries, but there are some industries where if your peers are disclosing certain non-GAAP measures as a company who's thinking about going public, at least something to consider um, if those metrics are meaningful to you and um, important to the story that the investors are telling. Yeah, you'll see it a lot in adjusted EBITDA where they're making adjustments to EBITDA yeah. on top of the EBITDA adjustments from net income. <laughs> so, um, you know, I think that's where you'll see a lot of comparable industry adjustments. Yeah, I know I've seen adjusted EBITDA RE for real estate, yeah. and that one's just like, we really added more letters to EBITDA. <laughs> adjustments um, on adjustments. Adjustment, adjusted, adjusted, adjusted. Okay, well for this one, what does the SEC look for regarding non-GAAP measures? Yeah, so I, I hit on one of them already, but I think the key things that we've seen in SEC comment letters are if you give more prominence to the non-GAAP measures than the GAAP measures. Mm -hmm. So practically, what does that look like? Placing the gap measures prior to the non-gap measures in the ordering of the document, and then making sure that you're reconciling the non-gap measures to the closest gap metric. Um, those often get comments if a company doesn't um, go through that from a disclosure perspective. The other one is if the disclosures or adjustments associated with those non-gap metrics are not clear or understood. As an example, when you're going through an adjusted EBITDA walk or reconciliation, making sure that you describe each of those adjustments that are not inherently clear um, based on the caption itself. I think the, the third is just the questions around each of those specific items that are included in that reconciliation of non, from gap to non-gap metrics, um, explaining why those are infrequent, unusual, and non-routine, um, because those are the types of adjustments that you would expect. And if there's questions as to why those meet that criteria, that's when the SEC often comments and asks for clarification. 
Well, that leads us nicely into MDNA, which is another hurdle that private companies are faced with when going public. The intention here is to focus on their ability to communicate to investors and other users of the financial statements, the relevant information they use in their decision-making. Um, is there anything you want to add to that, Jason? No, I think you hit a lot of the points um, right off the bat. I think the purpose of MDNA is to provide the readers with information around financial condition, changes in financial condition, liquidity, capital resources, and then the results of the operations. Um, providing that incremental detail along with just the numerical information, some of the reason why, right? So that way the readers of financials have that, that incremental information. And Regulation SK does provide guidelines around what is required of management when you're going through and preparing MDNA. The other thing I would just say operationally as companies embark on the IPO journey is this is an area that does take a lot of time to really iron out how are we going to describe the changes in financial position and, and liquidity and those types of things. And so an area of a lot of focus as companies um, go through the IPO process. Was that some intentional subliminal messaging with the Embark was. on? Yeah. I try and I like that, that in where I can. Yeah. <laughs> well, word on the street is that the SEC has issued some amendments fairly recently. Um, do any of these impact MDNA or risk factor requirements? Yes, yeah, they definitely do. I think part of the the recent changes are to really help modernize the MDNA disclosures that we have and meet the current needs of investors. Um, right, as as we've evolved from an investor community, from users of financial statements, I think it's important that they are considering some of those those guidance. Um, I think part of those is uh, part of those amendments was actual changes to item 303 within regulation SK, which is really the focal point of the MDNA guidance that we have. And one of the one of the things that they tried to do is reduce those disclosures that weren't beneficial to users. A specific mm -hmm. example of that is the tabular disclosures around contractual obligations. That mm -hmm. information is included elsewhere, and so there wasn't a need to replicate that within MDNA. So I think there was really a lot of thoughtfulness around these disclosures to try and narrow the focus and make it easier for users to read MDNA, because historically that has been a section of the document that can be very difficult to uh, get through and very cumbersome and detailed. In keeping with our pattern, what are some common things the SEC might bring up related to MDNA? Yeah, some of the common things that we see as comment letters from the SEC is being vague with respect to the changes in the financial condition and making sure that you clarify what actually drove that change it's that's being talked, talked about or disclosed. I think the other one, one is if there's, if there's significant, significant variances that um, may, may have offsetting impacts and you're not disclosing from a gross, from a gross perspective, what are the changes that, that may be offsetting to each other? Um, that is something that we've seen comments on. And then the other one is just around future liquidity. This is something that's clearly important to users of the financial statements to understand that future liquidity. And part of the clarification that came out recently from the SEC is really focusing on those liquidity disclosures and making sure that um, the user can understand future liquidity requirements, plans, et cetera. All right, we'll move into the next area, 
Um, another area that can cause complications is business combinations. Another favorite topic around here. Sure. This one can be especially complicated when there's an acquisition. There might be subsequent financial statement filing requirements depending on the timing of that acquisition and when they file any registration statement with the SEC. So let's start from a U.S. GAAP perspective. Are there any changes to the accounting for a business combination once a, a company decides to go public to keep in mind? Yeah, there are. So there's a few things that really kind of keep in mind here. I think one of the biggest changes that um, companies will come across is just around some incremental disclosure requirements for their acquisitions under 805. So there is an additional disclosure requirement to include pro forma information mm -hmm. um, under 805, which is only a public company requirement. So it will be one area that you know private companies will have to kind of incrementally true up that disclosure for. Um, but I also want to like highlight that there's another dis a pro forma disclosure requirement under Regulation SX. So Article 11 also has additional pro forma disclosure requirements. And I think a lot of times people assume that you know one will satisfy the other. And while they do align on certain things, um, there are some differences there. So it's not enough to assume that because you've met the incremental you know, US GAAP disclosures under 805 that you're automatically gonna satisfy all the requirements under Regulation SX. So just another thing to keep in mind as you're kind of looking at your disclosures and figuring out where additional pro forma information is gonna be necessary. It's not just within the statements themselves, but also within the registration statement. Adam, one question I've seen come up is if there's any elections that companies have made as private companies that they need to consider when they're thinking about going public. Yeah, so this is a obviously, you know, can be very problematic and it's often, you know, something we as accounting advisors always try to, you know, warn clients when they're thinking about like a public exit strategy, IPO, SPAC or something where they historically are either have taken a position to take a you know private company alternative or maybe they're exploring it currently because it does make the accounting easier in a lot of situations. Um, obviously, if you are kind of moving down the, the public space, you know any of those alternatives within GAP that were permissible for private companies are not allowed. So there are a couple that do come into play around business combinations or would be associated with business combinations. So you know, if you took the alternative to amortize goodwill that was created through a business combination, obviously you would have to unwind that accounting, that amortization. You'd have to go back and historically reperform impairment tests. Yeah. Um, there's also an alternative where people could have subsumed certain intangible assets that would have been identified in a business combination, and instead those get subsumed into goodwill and amortized. Um, those would have to actually be pulled out and separately recognized. So couple things there, but, you know, there's other alternatives outside business combinations. So just in general, it's always, you know, companies should have a good inventory of what their accounting policies are. And if there are going to be problematic existing policies, thinking about, you know, the efforts to unwind those and adopt, you know, tr I guess, transition them to what would be required of a public company. Um, and I guess one more thing I might just highlight around business combinations is just kind of the definition of a business itself. So obviously, U.S. GAAP provides a framework for determining whether a transaction is a business. Um, you know, one thing to keep in mind is the way the SEC defines a business is actually different. Um, so that being said, there could actually be transactions that are not a business under U.S. GAAP that potentially the SEC could deem as a business. And this is important when you're just trying to think about whether there's been any significant, you know, required businesses that may require incremental financial statements or things to be um, included in the filing. And that's because the SEC really kind of, you know, takes the standpoint of a business from the perspective of just 
whether or not an entity has like continuity of revenues versus kind of the screen test, inputs, outputs, processes, kind of assessment that you go through under US GAAP. And what about from an SEC reporting perspective? When might a company have to think about other financial statements of its acquired businesses? Yeah, so kind of just, you know, what I was alluding to here with you, you know, when you're thinking about definition of a business, acquired mm -hmm. businesses, things like that. But, you know, a company really has got to have a good inventory of what were all their significant acquisitions, especially made around the, you know, the timing of the filing of their S1 and really thinking about, you know, depending on the timing of those, the significance of them, um, they could be required to also submit separate financial statements, you know, anywhere from one to two years, um, including pro forma information. Um, and that's required under Rule 305. And that's, you know, generally one area that, you know, depending on whether or not those entities had historical financial statements or audits or things of that nature can be quite a big exercise and um, pretty daunting. Um, so just something to, you know, stay close to for sure. Yeah. And I think in those cases, sometimes I've seen you end up involving additional external auditors. So you have your own external auditors for your financials, but then you have significant acquisition. There's another set of set of auditors that are now involved. And so, um, you know, more auditors equals more fun for everybody, right? <laughs> A lot of parties. Oh, <laughs> yeah. uh, well, how is significance determined for these transactions? Yeah, so there's essentially three tests that you perform, and you basically take the highest outcome of the three tests to measure your significance. Um, we could do an entire podcast on all those tests if we really wanted to, because they can get pretty complex um, in applying them. But just high level, the three tests, there's an investment test, there's an asset test, and there's essentially an income test um, that has to be performed. And you would do that for all of your you know, recently acquired businesses or potentially probable businesses that could be acquired as well that might be on the pipeline. And to round us out on this part, what are some common SEC comments that might be raised here? Yeah, uh, it, it, a lot of it comes down to disclosure. Again, you know, just not providing enough good information to users of the financial statement. So asking people to expand on their disclosures if they feel like they're too light or they're missing critical elements. Um, or if there's information that's you know deemed material that was excluded, having to add stuff around that. Um, and to, to the extent maybe a, a company is taking the position that something was not material, that's why it was excluded or pro formers weren't included for this reason or another, you know, the, the SEC is going to want to understand how that rationale and conclusion were made. All right. And moving on to our next section would be stock-based compensation and cheap stock. Which, to start us off with, maybe, Adam, can you give us a definition of what cheap stock is? Yeah, so cheap stock is essentially, you know, stock that was recently issued prior to the IPO that essentially is viewed as having a value that's significantly below what the expected IPO price would be. And so the SEC will often focus on cheap stock, you know, as companies are preparing for their IPO or SPACs or whatever the case may be, really just to try to understand um, what was the rationale for any kind of fair value measurement differences between, you know, underlying stock that was issued? So if you think about like, you know, employee stock options or things of that nature and what the anticipated IPO price is. Um, you know, oftentimes when there's something there that looks kind of questionable to the SEC, they're going to ask a company to help reconcile um, those valuation differences and, and, and explain to them, you know, why 
this stock price when this issuance was made is, you know, varying so much from what your anticipated IPO price would be. And a company really has to try to justify um, that rationale of why both measurements are, you know, are reasonable. Um, and the failure to do that, you know, results in what's often referred to as like a steep, cheap stock charge, which basically requires oftentimes a company to recognize additional compensation expense or some type of other expense related um, to the issuance of those of those equity instruments. And in many cases, it when that charge happens, it does end up being a pretty material number. If you think about in the case of like stock options that could be given as an incentive plan to tons of employees or you know, C-suite or non-employees or whoever, and, you know, you're having to make an additional comp charge, it can potentially lead to restatements of prior financial statements and things like that. So it is a it is a hot button issue with the SEC. So I think it's something companies for sure need to kind of stay close to and understand that, hey, is our valuation team doing what they need to do? Do we understand the inputs judgments that are being made and can we support them? Yeah, that word restatements makes me get a little sweaty. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. Well, as they're evaluating these cheap stock issues, how far back does the SEC typically look? Yeah, so the SEC will say they're focusing on recently issued shares or options when they're kind mm -hmm. of doing this evaluation. But recent to the SEC can be anywhere from even one to two years from the anticipated, you know, IPO date or the effective date of the registration statement. So. You know, it's not going to be like, you know, things that happened in the last six months. They're going to actually go back quite a bit and do some digging. So when you're really thinking about prior evaluations, issuances, you know, it, the I guess the, the timeline is, is much broader than I think a lot of people expect. And what questions would the SEC raise uh, around this issue? Yeah, so most of them are going to be around just the valuation premise. You know, it is a valuation exercise. Um, so it's just trying to understand assumptions, methodologies that were used to value the stock, you know, thinking about the staleness potentially of some valuations that private companies may be using to justify why they, you know, used a certain price because private companies historically, they don't get recurring valuations. They may do an annual valuation, semi-annual, who knows? You know, they're typically not, you know, doing evaluation at every grant date. And so just trying to support, you know, that those one a year valuation, one time a year valuations rather are, are reasonable is another area they'll ask about, um, you know, discounts on the valuation. So just thinking about like, you know, when the company is private, you know, there's lack of marketability of those equity instruments. And so just understanding any discounts attributed for that lack of marketability, um, you know, I think if you talk to a lot of accounting advisors, you know, they'll reference to the AICPA valuation guide, which is really used as a as a good tool for companies when they're, um, you know, working with their valuation teams, valuation specialists to make sure that they're doing the proper due diligence, that they can support their key assumptions, methodologies. Um, and it has a lot of good pointers and stuff, you know, particularly around pre-IPO, post-IPO valuation. So, it's definitely a resource we recommend um, people be familiar with. All right. And throughout the episode, we've kind of layered in these questions about SEC issues that they commonly raise. And so that typically happens in the comment letter process. So could you talk a little bit about what the SEC comment letter process looks like? We are assuming that everyone did everything perfectly. They've listened <laughs> to our advice, but you still get an SEC comment letter. Yeah, so it's kind of like turning in your homework and waiting <laughs> yeah. for it to be graded. Yeah. Um, yeah, so essentially, like, you know, the company goes through all the 
all the hoops and everything they got to do to get their registration statement ready to go. Um, once that registration statement is filed with the SEC, it generally has up to 30 days to perform its initial review. Um, it'll provide its comments to the company on that registration statement. Um, the review is going to be done by somebody at the SEC staff who's going to obviously read through the entire document, um, really try to familiarize themselves with the company, the business, what they do. You know, they'll look at other information related to the company. So press releases, they'll go to the company's website, they'll look at news articles around the company just to really get familiar with who they are, their industry, their competitors, uh, the management team, all of those important factors. Mm -hmm. um, but the review itself is obviously going to be focusing on like the financial statements and other financial data that's included in the registration statement. You know, they'll look at the auditor's report as well. Um, and really just to make sure that that all that information complies with all the various regulations and guidance that's out there. So both SEC regulations, authoritative accounting guidance from US GAAP, um, you know, SEC staff policies, interpretations, things of that nature that they're all, you know, aligned or materially aligned um, with those different frameworks. Um, so it's important that the company obviously stay connected um, with the staff as they're performing their review. Um, you know, obviously the staff is likely to issue comments, um, you know, through the form of a comment letter that's going to require follow-up responses from the company. And, you know, when the company receives those, you know, comments, it's obviously going to you know, probably rope in other parties from their end as well. So thinking about, you know, their legal counsel, they may have accounting advisors that they're working with, their auditors, um, obviously the management team, you know, things of all of those people are really going to have to come together to, you know, make sure we understand the, the scope of the comments, the intent of the comments, and really, you know, work on a path forward to address those comments. Um, you know, all of the comments obviously have to be addressed and resolved before the, the staff is going to deem that the registration statement's effective. Um, and, you know, we also, you know, tend to warn people that it's not like it's a one and done set of comments. You know, obviously the the effort and you put into your response to the SEC's comments, you know, may or may not warrant follow-up comments. So just kind of something else to keep in mind is that um, there could be additional, you know, sets of comments coming your way. So something else to be aware of, especially if timing of the IPO is of obviously important and things of that nature that the review process could potentially hold stuff up like that. Um, obviously, if there's any changes needed, you know, they'll amend whatever needs to be amended in the registration statement. So whether it's you know, how they accounted for things. Oftentimes it's mostly disclosures and cleaning up language and things of that nature. Um, you know, they'll do that and, you know, resolve those comments with the staff. Um, you know, the SEC will eventually deem the filing effective, in which case they will then be obviously allowed to go offer their securities publicly. Uh, one thing to keep in mind as well is that SEC staff's comments become public. Mm. Um, so, um, it's at least 20 days after either the review is completed or the registration statement is deemed effective, but um, they do become public domain. So everyone can go out there and see the SEC's comments and your responses as well. Sounds like some pretty high stakes. <laughs> and I don't know if you're like me, but I usually have like a final V4 saved to my desktop. And so is just there- v Just V4. Yeah. It's like final, final for real this time. Yeah. Yeah. So I'd love to get things reviewed. Is there a draft process where maybe you could submit a draft before it has to be finalized? Yeah, there is. So I'm glad you mentioned, uh, you know, companies that are obviously going through the traditional IPO route, they do have the option to submit a draft registration statement. 
Um, I don't know if Jason, you saw this in some of the the deals you've been working through, but it, it is pretty common to do. And in, the SEC will um, perform what is known as a confidential review. Um, so they'll basically review the registration statement. Um, obviously confidential. It allows companies to keep some of the information that would be available out there to the public um, under wraps for you know a period of time, so that you know their competitors or whoever else can't really kind of see into the company before um, they're ready to do that. But you know, one thing to keep in mind is that um, you know confidential submissions you know eventually are going to be filed publicly. Mm-hmm. So. Um, you know, if you've got a planned roadshow coming up or you don't plan to do a roadshow, but, you know, you're going to request for it to become effective, then you basically have, I think it's 15 days or so is like kind of the, the timeline there that, um, you know, it'll essentially become a public filing for anyone to see. Yeah. The other thing I would just say in, in that same regard, um, you mentioned connect, staying connected with the SEC is around pre-clearing things with the SEC if there are significant accounting judgments that may warrant that pre-clearance process. So another avenue for companies to think about as they're going through, is there something that's highly judgmental where a pre-clearance letter or discussion would be beneficial? Sure. All right, well, if we get through this whole process, what are some best practices you both can offer up when responding to SEC comments? Yeah, you know, I think one goes in tandem with kind of what Jason just said here about pre-clearance. Like, don't be afraid to reach out to the staff. Um, And it can even be obviously before the comments come. But even when the comments are there, you know, if you need clarity on a comment, you don't understand what's being asked, the intent of it, you're trying to figure out the objective, um, you know, make sure you reach out and have a discussion with them because, making an assumption and then trying to respond and then it's not even in line with what they're thinking is where you end up with multiple rounds of comments and it delays the offering. Um, Another is don't just assume you can go search other people's comment letters and copy the same responses. I think it may be helpful to do a little research to see how others potentially handled similar comments or situations. But, you know, facts and circumstances always differ. It's hard to decipher if your fact pattern truly aligns with the companies that you're potentially looking at as an example or what their materiality levels may even be. So what's material to you or them could be different. So it, you know, it's always helpful to benchmark, I think some of those things, but it shouldn't be assumed because they were able to get over the hurdle of a comment that you providing the same response will always, you know, resolve it from your side as well. A couple others is just, you know, understanding the objective of the comment. Again, it's just what was the intent? What are we trying to accomplish here? And then, you know, lastly, I'll say a lot of times most comments are really the resolution is more disclosure or just more transparency. Um, So if there is a need to provide additional disclosure, whether it's in the current filing or they want you to include it in future filings, um, you know, it may be helpful to give them a draft of the disclosure you intend to include and then make sure that you guys are aligned on that disclosure so there's no further questions down the road. Yeah, the only other thing I would add, I think those are all great points, is not being afraid to clarify within the response, right? If you feel the disclosures are in line with the requirements, but maybe within your response letter clarifying 
as a company, why we believe we're in compliance yep. and having some of that additional color and commentary, leaving that out of the actual document itself, but including it in your written response to the comments is something I've, I've seen a lot. Yeah, you'll definitely want to include references to US GAAP or you know SEC regulations or things of that nature if they support your accounting position or presentation of certain items as well. Yep. All right. Well, thank you guys. I think that's plenty for us to cover today. We talked about a lot of topics from a very high level. Obviously, we could go deeper on a lot of these things. And in fact, we have on segment reporting for sure. We have other episodes. For sure. um, just look for Jason Larkin's name. You'll probably find it. Um, and we do have additional resources, and we'll try and link those in the show notes for you. But thank you both, Adam and Jason, for joining me today in this discussion. And thank you to all of our listeners for tuning in. We hope you found this discussion helpful, and we look forward to having you join us again on another episode of Accounting Matters. This podcast is for general informational purposes only. Embark makes no representation or warranty as to the accuracy or completeness of the information contained in the podcast series, and it should not be used as a substitute for consultation with professional advisors. Information discussed in our podcast may also be superseded by new guidance or as new interpretations emerge. Listeners are cautioned to carefully evaluate any relevant subsequent authoritative guidance issued.